0: Very good. Now take your Bibles, please, and turn to me to the book of Second John. Second John, Second and Third John are tiny little books. They're tucked away at the end of the New Testament. Second uh, John, they're the shortest. Second and Third John are the shortest letters in the Bible. Probably they're more like biblical postcards than letters. Uh, they're small, but not insignificant. So we're going to spend uh, the next month, Lord willing, in these two little books. I'm going to read 2 John in just a minute. I want you to be ready for it when that time uh, comes. Of course, if you don't have a Bible, uh, you can use the Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at all, you can take that as our gift to you. We'd love for you to leave with a copy of the scriptures if you don't uh, have one. I'm going to admit it right from the outset. Uh, I like Star Trek. Uh, I probably like Star Wars more, but I still like Star Trek I'm not a obsessive fan. I don't have any outfits. I don't have a, uh, a communicator replica in my, home, my house. Um, as I think about it, though, I think I've seen more than my fair share of Star Trek. I used to watch the original television shows, I think, on Saturday afternoons and reruns. I watched The Next Generation when I was in high school. Uh, I've watched some episodes here and there of the Enterprise show, Voyager, Deep Space Nine, a few of the movies, I've seen them. And if you don't know what I'm talking about right now, that is a credit to your character. (laughs) Now, you don't have to be much of a fan to know about Mr. Spock. Uh, Mr. Spock, of course, was a character first played by Leonard Nimoy. He was a Vulcan. Actually, Mr. Spock is half Vulcan, half human, He's the one with pointy ears, right? Does that help you at all? He can go like this. Okay, right? Okay, Mr. Spock. and uh, Yeah, okay. Um, now, Mr. Spock's other distinguishing characteristic is that as a Vulcan, he doesn't express emotion. Uh, Vulcans have suppressed their emotions entirely, submitting them completely to logic and to reason. According to one version of the story, Vulcans used to be very angry, rageful, uh, out of control, explosive people, but they found peace by eliminating their emotions from their culture. Now, I think it's impossible for a human being to do this. And I think it's really impossible for a human being to conceive of what that is like. But I have enjoyed watching this, the writers of Star Trek try to figure this out. What would that look like if you could take someone and eliminate from their lives all emotions so that they only lived by logic and reason alone? One of the ways that they imagine, the writers imagine this, is that Vulcans are blunt so blunt sometimes that they are actually rude. It comes across as rude. They're thoughtless. They're insensitive. If if they have no feelings, why should they take care of your feelings? Um, Vulcans call it like they see it, and the only way they see it is according to logic, and here it is. Now, if you're visiting our church this morning, you're relatively new to our congregation, you should know that we as a church are committed as committed to the truth as the Vulcans are committed to logic. Uh, We believe that the Bible is God's truth for all people for all time. That's part of our doctrinal statement. And because we believe that the Bible is the truth, we spend a lot of time reading it, studying it, teaching it, uh, thinking about it. We devote at least half of our service to what we're doing right now, this lesson from the scriptures. Um, This congregation is is, uh, not rude about it, but a little demanding. If you're going to stand behind the pulpit, you better open the Bible. And you better explain it. You better tell us what it says. Uh, This morning, did you notice when Ray prayed, he prayed that we would be faithful in preaching the Bible, that we wouldn't add to Scripture or take away from it, but that we would be um, uh, long-suffering and and serving and persevering in this call to the truth. Uh, On Wednesday nights at prayer meeting, one of the things we always pray for is the Sunday service. And sometimes uh, at prayer meeting, I lament to the people about my uncertainty about what to do with Sunday's text. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with this passage. I'm not, gonna sure how to, I'm not sure how to explain it. And inevitably, someone in the room will look at me and say, just tell us what it says. Don't worry about being flowery. Don't worry about being uh, rhetorically uh, brilliant. You can't do that anyway. Just focus on the text. Tell us what it says. So... I ask the question, what, in the context of our devotion to the truth, to the message of the Bible, what keeps us from being Christian Vulcans, from being the sort of people who love the truth so much that we're somewhat cold about it, somewhat inconsiderate, somewhat rude or insensitive? How do we avoid that? Now, here's a book that is open before us that tells us that if you dive deeply enough into the truth, it always produces love. In fact, if your pursuit of the truth doesn't make you a more loving person, a more compassionate person, a more generous person, then you don't really understand the truth because the truth and love are inextricably linked We don't really have this problem in our church, I don't think. We're not a congregation of Christian Vulcans. I think it would probably be hard for you to find a congregation that loves the truth that's a church of Christian Vulcans. But every now and then, it's uh, it's good for us to remember why we're not. So we're going to approach this little letter uh, this morning. And the context is very similar in 2 John to the, what it was in 1 John. So many of the same themes are in 2 John as they were in 1 John. The apostle who wrote this letter is concerned because the church is inundated with false teachers. There's false teachers traveling around and they are denying that Jesus is God in the flesh. We saw the same thing in 1, 1 John. These false teachers who are saying that God is not Uh, that Jesus is not God the Son incarnate. They admire Jesus. They talk about Jesus. They will not affirm his identity as God's Son. Now, we're going to spend two weeks, I think, in this letter. Next week, we're going to focus on the false teachers. We're going to talk about them next week. Today, I want to show you how, how John expected the truth, the true message about the person and work of the Lord Jesus, the truth, how it manifests itself in a local assembly. What does the truth produce in the lives of God's people? That's what we're going to think about from the first six verses or so of Second John. But let's read it before we proceed any further. It's short. We're going to read the whole thing, even though we're going to look just at the first half. So let's start Second uh, John, verse 1. If you're in chapter 2 of Second John, you're in the wrong book. So 2 John, verse 1. The elder, to the lady chosen by God and to her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only but also all who know the truth because of the truth who lives in us which lives in us and will be with us forever grace mercy and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's son will be with us in truth and love It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we've had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to His commands. As you heard from the beginning, His command is that you walk in love. I say this. Because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist, watch out so that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God Whoever continues in the teaching has both a father and the son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your sister, who is chosen by God, send their greetings." So what does the truth produce? What is the evidence that is sinking down deeply into your heart and mind? Now before I answer that question, do you mind if I introduce this this letter a little bit? We usually do this, right? Um, um, I I want to talk about what this letter is. Uh, 2 John is, is an excellent example of the form of ancient letters. It starts by identifying the author. We're used to this. How do all of Paul's letters start? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. This author, though, only identifies himself as the elder. Now, who's that? Um, Elder could simply refer to an older man. That's that's possible. Uh, The New Testament uses... Uh, the term elder, most often to describe an officer in the church, there are elders and deacons in the church. And elders are called elders because of their maturity, their spiritual maturity in following Christ. It often coincides with the maturity of age, not always, but, but uh, that's the office, the, the elders. Now the early church used to use the term elder also to describe not just those office holders in a local church, but they used to describe it to a group of people who seemed to have influence in the church who were the disciples of the apostles. So Jesus taught the apostles, and the apostles had their own disciples, and these disciples had a level of preeminence in the early church, and they were sometimes called elders, a group of elders uh, who had this influence. But here uh, the author, he refers to himself as the elder. Now, based on the content and style of this letter, which you probably picked up on, most scholars identify this with the apostle John he's writing from his old age perhaps he's he's writing as the last remaining apostle and the term elder here emphasizes the warmth of his relationship with his audience he's he loves them it's almost as if he's writing from the grandpa not quite but it's kind of the the tone that John has here and the recipient of this letter is is uh, called the chosen lady Now, who's that? Uh, Some people have tried very hard to figure out who this woman is. Some people, uh, your translation might say uh, the uh, elect lady or the lady who is elect. And some people uh, simply call her. They think that the, the phrase chosen or the phrase elect is her name. So they call her the lady electa, which is a terrible first name. Okay, I don't recommend that you put that on your list of baby names. Electa. Um, If that's true, then she has a sister by the same name because verse 13 talks about another chosen lady. So the two elective sisters. I don't know. That's strange. Um, Some people, a few scholars have suggested that the chosen lady is actually Mary, the mother of our Lord. John had a very close relationship with Mary and Mary, by tradition, spent time in Ephesus towards the end of her life. So uh, there's that suggestion. That's pure conjecture. I think, I'm not alone in this, but I think that the audience is actually a congregation of people. He's, he's writing to a local church. And one way to tell that is that John uses, it's not clear in English, but it is in the Greek text, that John uses both singular and plural uh, of the word you to refer to this group. So sometimes he writes you and sometimes he writes y'all. So, or use Y'all. He's, he's writing, he's writing to, to all of them. It's a group of people. The word lady is, is actually the feminine form of the Greek word for Lord. So there's the Lord and his lady. Um, a local church. Uh, remember that um, the church is the bride of Christ. If, if he's Lord, then the bride would be his lady. Uh, I record the minutes uh, for the uh, elder board. I'm the secretary of the elder board, and and uh, last month we had a discussion about how I worded something. So we were talking about accepting resignation letters from Keith and Vicky Cullen. He's, of course, serving in Mount Joy. And um, I, I put in the minutes... Well, adding and, and, and removing members is a task of the congregation. This is not something elders do, but the elders play a role in it. So uh, we, we took the resignation letters, and I wrote in the board minutes that one of the board members made a motion to recommend to the congregation that she should accept the resignation of Keith Cullen. And one of the elders said, that sounds odd. It says that she should accept the resignation of Keith Cullen. So is the church an it, or is the church a he, or maybe I should just said the congregation and the congregation again, um, but at least in Second John, the church is a she. Score one point for the secretary of the board, all right? Now there, that's gloating, I know, but there's few joys in this job, so just give me that one, okay, just give me that one, we'll move on. We're familiar with the format of this letter. How it begins, grace and peace. That's how Paul began his letters. Um, the ancient preference was just for one word, greetings. That's how James begins his letters. So James, an apostle, greetings. Paul changed that. So the Greek word for greetings is karen, and um, Paul changed it to the Greek word for grace, how He does a little word play there. Paul's doing to emphasize grace. That's how this letter begins, with that greeting. And um, the first six verses focus on the spiritual health of the congregation. There's a disease. There's a disease in the church, and here's how this local church can remain healthy. And the emphasis here is on the truth. Just how many times Paul uses the word truth in these first letters over and over and again. What I'm interested in is all the ways that the truth manifests itself. And John explains four ways that the truth manifests itself in the congregation. The most important one, which we're going to get to later, is related to love. We're going to spend most of the time there. Um, but what else does the truth do? Four things. Number one, the truth introduces us to the grace of God. The truth introduces us to the grace of God. Verse 3 says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son, will be with us, grace, mercy, and peace from God and from Jesus, will be with us in truth and in love. This grace, this mercy, this peace comes to us from the true message, the true message about Jesus himself. How do we have grace, mercy, and peace? It's from the truth. Now John puts the Father and the Son on equal footing here in this passage. You notice he did it with the word from Grace, mercy, and peace are from God the Father and from Jesus Christ. He very deliberately repeats that word to put the Father and the Son together. Now, God is called Father in the Old Testament. Often, not often. He's the Father of the nation of Israel. He's the Father in the sense of creation. But God as Father in this personal Intimate, loving way with an individual is new in the New Testament. And the only way that you can know God the Father that way is through the Son. The only way to experience the grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father is through the Son. Uh, this echoes here. John is emphasizing this, I think. He's echoing John fourteen 6, isn't he? Isn't he? Um, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You cannot experience the grace, mercy, and peace of God without or apart from the Lord Jesus. You have to affirm the truth about him if you will find God's grace. This is an exclusive claim. Some people don't like exclusive claims. Uh, it, It did not originate with me, it was the Lord Jesus who made this exclusive claim. But, but the objection is that, that exclusive claims like this fuel hatred and divisiveness and violence, exclusive claims don't bring peace. They're arrogant and they don't sync very well with how people think about spiritual truth. What most people don't realize is that every statement about the truth, every statement spiritual, about spiritual truth or any truth, uh, any statement about the truth is an exclusive claim. It's one of my favorite lines that we hear sometimes in our culture. We tolerate everything but intolerance. It's a self contradictory statement, right? Uh, there's a common analogy that people use to talk about uh, spiritual truth. You've heard it. I'm sure you've heard it. Truth, the, the search for truth is like blind men looking at an elephant. Have you heard this? So one blind man grabs the rope, uh, the tail of the elephant, and he says, Oh, an elephant is just like a rope. One blind man grabs onto the trunk, uh, the, the leg of the elephant and says, oh, an elephant is just like a tree. And one blind man pushes against the body of the elephant, oh, an elephant is just like a wall. And, and they all have their own little perspective on what an elephant is. And, and that's supposed to represent different views, religious views of God. And we all see a little bit of God, but not all of God. And, and if you claim to know all of God, that's arrogant. You've heard arguments like that, Right? The problem with that analogy is that it only makes sense if you have in your life seen an entire elephant. It's the only way that analogy makes sense. You can't be blindly groping around. You have to be able to see the whole thing in order to understand the analogy. To understand the analogy, you have to have the knowledge that you claim that no one else has. That's very arrogant very arrogant to go to a christian and say you understand a little bit of god and let me tell you uh here's the truth that you have and to a muslim you you've got a little bit of it and and to a jew you've got a little bit of it and to a buddhist well you've got a little bit of truth but nobody has all the truth you know in fact the only one who has all the truth when they make statements like that is me right uh all truth claims are exclusivistic It's not just Christians who believe in in exclusive truth. You're probably quite an exclusivist when it comes to medicine. Listen to what Greg Kuchel wrote. He said, Most ailments need particular antidotes. Increasing the air pressure in your tires will not fix a troubled carburetor. Aspirin will not dissolve a tumor. Cutting up credit cards will not wipe out debt because... That is, uh, Wipe out our debt that, it's already, uh, that is already owed. If your water pipes are leaking, you call a plumber, not an oncologist. But a plumber will not cure cancer. Any adequate solution must solve the problem that needs to be solved, and singular problems need singular solutions. Some antidotes are one-of-a-kind cures for one-of-a-kind ailments. Sometimes only one medicine will do the job, as much as we may, may like it to be otherwise. Did you hear about the plane this week that left London City Airport? Left London City Airport and it was bound for Dusseldorf, Germany and everybody on board was surprised when they landed in Edinburgh, Scotland. They had filed the wrong flight plan. They took off from London and went up north and landed in Edinburgh. Okay, I don't care how long you fly, you can't get to Dusseldorf, Germany by flying to Edinburgh. There is only one way to get to Dusseldorf. There's only one way to the grace, mercy, and peace from God. The grace, mercy, and peace we have that we so desperately need, it comes from the truth that is in the Lord Jesus. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Here is something else that the truth does. Number two, what else does the truth does? Truth befriends us. Truth befriends us. Verse 2 says that the truth lives in us and will be with us forever it's a little strange to use the word lives to talk about truth because those are relationship words with us and lives are relationship words lives is sometimes translated remains your translation might say the truth remains this is a permanent condition the truth has moved in and it's going to be with us forever that's strange to talk about truth that way last week we talked about how as followers of Jesus you have a different relationship with sin I was trying to illustrate that um sin is not who you call at the end of a long day. Sin isn't someone you look forward to seeing on weekends. You don't follow sin on Facebook and like all of sin's posts. You don't snap with sin. You don't consult sin when you need advice. There are no framed pictures of you and sin hanging out at the beach on vacation. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a different relationship with sin. You don't match sin on Christian Mingle. But the exact opposite is true of your relationship with the truth. The truth is who you call at the end of a long day. The truth is who you look forward to seeing on the weekends. You follow truth on Facebook and you like all of truth's posts. You snap with truth. You consult with truth when you uh, need some advice. There are framed pictures of you and truth at the beach hanging in your house. You and truth match on Christian Mingle. You have a new relationship with the truth. In fact, this is so personal, this relationship with truth, is that... uh, it matches how sometimes Jesus describes the Holy Spirit. I'll look at John 14, verse 15. John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commands, he says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. He's the advocate. What's true about the Spirit of truth? Well, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you, ha, 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 He lives with you and will be in you. The truth John is speaking about here is not just the facts, but the spirit of truth himself. Truth befriends you. Now here's number three. Truth transforms the way you live. Truth transforms the way you live. In verse 4 of 2 John, John says, It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth just as the Father commanded us. Now, it seems at some point in time that John met some of these members of this church. And uh, he met up with them, and uh, he was very encouraged by their walk. And maybe they were headed home, and John said, Oh, before you go, let me, let me write a few lines, and I'll send you this letter. Uh, you can take it back and read it to the whole church. Maybe that's how 2 John came about. I'm not sure. Regardless, John saw how some of these church members were living, and it encouraged him. It's very similar to what he wrote in 3 John 3. Can you turn over the page to 3 John 3? Look what it says. 3 John 3, It gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. You're walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. The truth about Jesus, uh, the truth about Jesus changes us. The truth brings with it certain responsibilities. It changes the way you live. There has to be something miraculous involved with this truth because change doesn't come easily, does it? A few years ago, there was a a report from the American Heart Association about how people change their behaviors after they have heart attacks and strokes. Do you know how people change their behaviors after they have a heart attack or a stroke? Not much. In the immediate... Uh, only about 25% of, any, of people make any lifestyle changes after a heart attack or stroke. Only 25% make changes, and most of those changes, uh, they, they disappear within a couple of years. If a heart attack or a stroke won't work to change you, what will change you? Apparently the truth changes you. This is actually what we're about as a congregation the slow difficult spirit-inspired truth-driven process of change the truth is not, is not just something to believe it is a calling to fulfill and it's sometimes a slow and difficult process you've been meeting with people who are in your accountability group or you've been meeting with growth group members some of you have been meeting for a long time you've been coming to prayer meeting where you meet and pray with people H- have you changed been slow, hard sometimes. But have you changed? I told you this before. It was 10 years. I had been here 10 years before the elders finally stopped writing on my annual evaluations that uh, my ministry was not being hindered by sarcasm. I used to write that every year in my evaluation. Sarcasm is a, is a hindrance to your ministry. And then they finally stopped, and I looked at them and said, well, duh. So um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I did not. That's not true. That is not true at all not true. It is true that they stopped, but it took 10 years, 10 years. The truth changes us. We're making slow, steady progress. One of the changes that the truth brings to us is that changes us into loving people. That's what we're going to talk about for the rest of our time. The truth teaches us to love one another. You knew this was coming, right, in the letter of John? Any letter that John writes, it's got to be about love. Did you notice all the references to love in these opening verses to the lady chosen? I love you in the truth. Um, uh, and and, and um, uh, where else? He says, not only I, but also who know the truth, they love you uh, because of the truth. Uh, it's, just, it's suffused with love. And then he says, verse 5, verse um, 5. Uh, 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 I'm writing in this new command that we love one another, verse 6. This is love. He writes about this a lot here. Now, my question about this, this passage here is, what is it about the truth that teaches us to love? What is it about knowing the truth about Jesus that will prompt us, that teach us to love? The deeper you go into the truth, the more loving your community should be. They, they mesh together. Just think, just think about what people would be like who know the truth but have no concept of love or no appreciation for love. They'll hold on to the truth, but they'll do it in a way that is mocking or mean or demeaning or cold. If you don't know what that looks like, then you're probably not on Facebook, right? That's what happens on social media. I know the truth and I'm going to hit somebody with it. Well, love without truth isn't very helpful either. What good is it for you to love somebody, but you won't, don't love them enough to tell them the truth? That's, that's not very loving. This is a sort of love that John is writing here about. It's somewhat discriminating. In verse 10, he says of 2 John, we'll talk about this next week. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. This love is discriminating love. It's, it's not sentimental love. It's not romantic love. It's not love that's based on mutual attraction. It's love that's founded on truth. Danny Aiken said that Second John puts love together better than any other New Testament book. It puts truth and love better together better than any other New Testament book. Um, he said, I like this phrase from Danny Aiken, he's writing about a fidelity to the truth that knows no compromise and a love for one another that knows no boundaries. A beautiful phrase, a love, uh, the, a fidelity to the truth that knows no compromise, and a love for one another that knows no boundaries. Uh, both of them go together. Now, what's the connection between love and truth? How does the truth teach us to love one another? I'm sure there's multiple ways that we can talk about this. I just want to tell you two stories that Jesus told. Two stories that you already know that I think help us understand how the truth and love go together. John wrote in verse 3 about uh, God's mercy. Mercy that does not treat us as our sins deserve. Mercy that forgives. That's a form of love. Jesus told us a story about forgiveness. Uh, I'm going to tell it to you. Do you mind if I tell it to you? So, Jesus said, there was a king who sat down one day and he was going over his books, reviewing his accounts, and he discovered that there was a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold. It's a huge amount of money. It's more money, possibly, than anybody could borrow in a lifetime. Some people think that, that Jesus is, is telling about a king who was thinking about one of his appointed officials, an official who was appointed to collect taxes, and the 10,000 bags of gold represented the taxes from a whole region. And this man was supposed to have collected these 10,000 bags of gold and taxes and, and br- uh, t- delivered it to the king. And he didn't do it. What happened? Did he not do his duty? I'm not sure. Did he take all the money and then waste it somehow? How could, you, how could you blow through 10,000 bags of gold? seems impossible. Regardless, he did not have the money that he owed the king. So he was brought before the king, and the king asked him where the money was. I don't have the money. But he, he fell to his knees, and he said, I promise I'll pay it back. I'll pay every penny back, which is impossible. Everybody in the room knows it's impossible to pay back 10,000 bags because it's such a huge amount of money. You couldn't possibly make that much money in your lifetime. Ten lifetimes would not make that much money. He pleads with the king. The king decides to offer him mercy, forgives the debt. He leaves the king's presence and he's walking out on the street, and he sees another guy who owes him a 100 silver coins. That's not chump change, but, but it's a debt that you could repay. He grabs the guy by the throat, give me my money, give me my money. He says, I'll pay you back, I'll pay you back. No, he throws him in jail. King heard about it. King heard about it, and he called back in his servant, and he said, what happened? What happened? Don't you realize the debt that I forgave you? I had mercy on you, and you'll not, you're not have mercy on this man who owed you chump change in comparison to what you owe me. Then he threw the guy in jail. Now, Jesus said, He told this story, and He said, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now, can you draw the truth, uh, the line from the truth? To, uh, the love, uh, to love the way Jesus does? Can you, can you draw that line? It's, it's not hard. Jesus is basically saying, forgiven people forgive others. Forgiven people forgive others. When the truth of the mercy of God, when the truth of the mercy of God that he has had on you sinks down deeply into your heart, if you really believe it, one of the implications is that you will forgive others. And to the extent that you refuse to forgive, to that extent you do not understand the grace and mercy of God. Now we should admit, oh, this is not easy. I say this with full recognition that some of you have been hurt badly. You've been through incredible pain. Jesus' story says, though, it's time for you to do some math, to do some calculations. Remember in second grade when you had to work with the greater than or less than symbol? The little alligator opens its mouth to the bigger number, right? You get a long list of numbers and you have to, uh, this is, let's see, from your perspective, uh, less than, greater than, remember doing that? Okay, two comparisons. Let's put your debt to God in this column because of your sin and the way people have hurt you. The real, genuine, which I'm not diminishing at all, offenses that have been done against you. How are you going to put the symbol? Which directions are going to go? Do the math, Jesus says. This past weekend, uh, Scott ran into a man that I met several years ago when he was a youth pastor. Uh, this guy uh, blew up his marriage. He had an affair, he left his wife, he left his kids, they were apart for four years. Um, what's on the list of things that this dear wife needed to forgive? I'm going to make a list. Uh, his broken promises, his adultery, he made her a single parent for four years, he lied to her, he abandoned her, I'm sure there were financial shenanigans involved in covering up the affair, I'm Sure. Now their marriage is back together again, actually. They remarried after this divorce. He, he came home. She forgave him. And now they're leading retreats for couples to help uh, these couples who are struggling with their marriages. And they talk about the grace of God in their own marriage. How's that wife going to set up her alligator mouth of her sin and the sin that's been done against her? What you may need to forgive is not small. But in comparison to your offense against God, it is small. That should sober you. It should sober you like it sobered the Lord Jesus. Do you remember the price that was paid so that you could be forgiven? So in the story that Jesus told in in the gospel, who absorbed the penalty of these 10,000 bags of gold? Who absorbed that, that price? Well, the king did. It was his money that he was gone forever now. Who paid the price of your forgiveness? The Lord Jesus did on the cross because the wages of sin is death and he died for us in our place uh, as our sacrifice. And on the night before he was crucified, the Lord Jesus prayed in the garden, Father, if there is any other way for this price to be paid, please let that be done. He knew, he knew he knew that there was no other way. He knew how great the price would be. One of the reasons, you know, one of the reasons why we're so firm about the exclusive truth of what the Lord Jesus has done, one of the reasons we're so firm about that is because we know the unimaginable price that the Lord has paid. We know that there is no other way. There's no other way. Jesus pled before the Father for there to be another way. There is not another way. Forgiven people forgive others. Are you having trouble with that? Working that out? Maybe you should talk to um, somebody about it, a member of your growth group or, or your accountability partner or one of the elders. This is one of the ways that the truth teaches us to love. The truth of the forgiveness that is ours through the Lord Jesus teaches us to love other people by forgiving them. Now there's one more story. This is in Luke 15. It's the third in a series of stories that that, that uh, Jesus told about lost things. If you have a child in your house, you should like stories about lost things because they can't find anything, right? Well, last, this story is about a lost son. Man had two sons. One asked for his father for his inheritance. Uh, the request is a terrible insult. Give me all the money that uh, uh, you're going to give me one, what, what, that I'm going to get when you die basically saying to his father I wish you were dead I want the money the father gave him the money and the man left the text doesn't say Jesus didn't tell us what's the story but I wonder what it would be like for that father how he sent his son out of the house how did he see him go do you have tears in his eyes was he angry probably the answer to the question is yes probably both right the son wasted the money, the text says, in wild living. And when he was absolutely destitute, he decided to come home. It would have been nice if he had realized how hurtful he had been before he ran out of money. Wouldn't that have been nice? <laughs> his poverty and only his poverty made him come to his senses. I wonder if God is driving some of you into poverty so that you come to your senses. His father saw him from afar, Jesus said, and he ran to welcome him home. He threw a party and he bestowed on that young man all the rights and all the privileges of sonship. That story is the experience of all of us. Everyone who has heard the truth and believed it has experienced the grace and mercy and peace of God. Lavish forgiveness. We've all come home All of us who are followers of Jesus, we've come home. And because we know that we have come home, we know that everyone is welcome to come home. The truth about our own homecoming makes us ready and anxious to welcome and invite others to come home too. If you're a follower of Jesus and you come home, you have not met a person. There is no one that you will see at the grocery store this week or no one you will see at work. No one who lives next to you is not also invited to come home. You can come home. The invitation is for everyone. The truth about our own homecoming makes us ready and anxious to welcome and invite others to come home too. I once knew two people. Some of you know them several years ago. I won't be specific. So my one friend, uh, she was young, a bit rough around the edges, loud, brash, uncouth, genuinely caring, a person really interested in serving others, a little crazy, but but, uh, um, a, a genuinely nice person. My other friend was older and had made the right choices in life at every turn. Stable home, successful marriage, good reputation, community involvement, faithfulness to the church. Actually, both of them were followers of Jesus. So one day, this older friend needed a ride to the airport, and my younger friend, a kind person, volunteered. Uh, When the trip was over, a couple of weeks later, my older friend asked me why my younger friend was such a mess. Why is that person such a mess? And I knew this story, and I said, I I knew that younger person's story, and I said, if you knew where that person had come from, you would not be complaining about the mess. You would be thanking God for his great grace and bringing them to where they are. We have 180 members or so of the congregation. Every single one of them is a grand display of God's grace. We've all been welcomed home. Will you not love them too? Now, John is concerned that the love we have for one another not be so generic as to be meaningless. That's, that's why he talks the way he does in verses 5 and 6 about commands. I'm writing you this command, and, and love is obedience to his commands. He's trying to avoid, he's trying to prevent people from saying things like, I love everyone, but actually has no, no, no meaning, no, no content. John says that love walks in obedience to God's commands. I think this is a parallel with Romans 13, 8 to 10. Look what it says. Let no doubt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For Sorry, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. The commandments of God show love in all its various different shades. What does it mean to love? You say, I love everyone. Well, what does it mean to love? It means not stealing from them. It means not murdering them. It means keeping your promises to them, not coveting what they own. Love is broad, it's thick, it's rich. And the truth creates this sort of love. Love in all of its shades and all of its colors. Some of you are colorblind. You don't see red and green very well. I can tell by the way you dress. Are you also love blind? Do you not see all the shades of love? Do you miss love in all its various Shades and colors and hues. All the ways it manifests itself. Maybe you're more like Mr. Spock than you realize. Truth and love. Truth and love. Truth and love. This is the currency of a healthy church. A fidelity to truth that knows no compromise. A love for one another that knows no boundaries. All in response to the message of grace that comes to us from the Father and from the Son. That's the only way to survive in this contrary world. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would, by your grace, work out in our congregation our love for one another. Lord, uh, I pray that you would sink the truth of forgiveness deep down into our minds and hearts so that we would forgive others. We who have received such mercy from you, how can we withhold it from others? And oh, that you would make us, because we have been welcomed home, a church that is glad to receive all those who name the name of Christ and invite those who don't to come and be welcomed at home too. Lord, we are thankful to you for the great truth that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our great sovereign. He's the one who rescued us. And now we pray on the basis of that grace that you would fill us with love, that you would change us. Uh, And we thank you for the promise that you will remain with us forever in his name that we pray these things together saying, Amen.